Good evening. Thank you so much for the kind introduction as well as the kind invitation to be with you. It's a blessing for our family to join the congregation that meets here on the east side of Singapore. And we're so thankful for all that you do. For those that, that may be viewing uh, online or tuning in online, and for those who are visiting, we are thankful that you're here. We're going to be running through a whole lot of Bible passages tonight. Some will serve for us to uh, dive into, to, to the depths of them in some degree. Others will just glaze over the top, and yet others will just mention. Those, those passages have all been sent to Alvin, and so if anyone here would like a copy of my slides after we're done, please, after we're done, you're welcome to those so that you can go back and you can look at those passages. You can read the text in its context and the version of your choice and the language of your choice. That you might better understand what is being said and communicated tonight. The theme for this, uh, this weekend's meeting is an abundant life. This theme is taken from John chapter 10 in the passage where Jesus set forth the idea of being the good shepherd. But he started with this in John 10 and verse 7. He said, I am the door of the sheep. That's right. All that came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not hear them. He said, but I am the door. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. And he shall go in and out and find pasture. For the sheep to find pasture would be to enjoy the provisions which the shepherd had given him. In John 10 and verse 10, he says, the thief cometh not, but that he may steal and kill and destroy. And here's where we want to focus our attention. I came that you... Jesus, the good shepherd, his disciples, the sheep. I became, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The question that is laid before us by the good shepherd, John chapter 10 and verse 11, the one who lays down his life for the sheep is do you and I have an abundant life? If there is something um, in our lives that does not see or look it, uh, abundant or in abundance, maybe we could reconsider. And the things that we will study together tonight, if the Lord allows the earth to stand tomorrow night and the following night, will help us to see what an abundant life is. The assigned topic, though, as you can see on the board, is not about an abundant life that we can enjoy on this earth. What I want to suggest to you, though, is that Jesus offers an abundant life Jesus promises an abundant life that is not confined to this world alone. Thus, Jesus offers a life forever in heaven. Allow us to consider that word life as it is used by the good shepherd in John chapter 10. John would write in John 20 verses 30 and 31. John 20 verses 30 and 31. Many other signs did Jesus, therefore, the presence of many witnesses. But these stand written that you may have life in his name. In believing in Christ, there is an offer of life. That life is not simply the breath of life. God instilled the breath of life into every human being. How long do I have? Maybe 40 minutes. Maybe. Okay. I forgot to set my timer. So we're going to start over right now. <laughs> God instilled the breath of life at the point of conception. Whenever a human being is a human being, whenever male seed meets female seed or egg, when those come together, we have a human. God gives life. That's not the type of life Jesus is offering. He's offering another type of life. 
He would speak in regards to being born again. In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus. If you're not familiar with the scripture and you don't know Nicodemus, that's okay. We can work towards understanding who Nicodemus is, but I'm more concerned with the question he said. What may I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is going to tell him, you must be born again to inherit the kingdom of heaven or to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he says, teacher, we know that you are from God. I'm in John 3, 1. For no one can do the signs thou doest except God be with him. And Jesus is going to take that opportunity and he's going to offer him entrance into the kingdom of heaven, explaining that one must be born again. This is not a physical birth. And Nicodemus would have the question, can a man enter again into his mother's womb? And the answer would be no, but rather there would be a birth by water, a spiritual birth. One would be born by water and the spirit, John 3, 3 through 5. It's that new life that Jesus offers. It's one that can be enjoyed while our bodies still draw breath, but is also something that extends beyond the grave. Allow then Jesus, the good shepherd in the book of John, to continue to explain. In John 3, verses 15 and 16, he describes this life. He says it is eternal life. Okay, now I have a bit of an understanding of where Jesus is going. Right? So God so loved the world that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but should have eternal or everlasting life. That's why Jesus, the good shepherd of John 10 and verse 11, could say right here in the book of John and John 4 and verse 14 that he offered eternal wages. Well, you and I don't work for eternal wages from our employer. We work for money. Okay, uh, money is what we spend, it's what we use. Jesus offered something that the employer does not offer. He offered something that mom and dad does not offer. He offered life that is different, wages that are different. He offered water, John 4, 14. He offered food, John uh, 6, 54. He offered life, John 10 and verse 28. And according to John 17, verses two and three, that life was his to give. It was something that God had given or bestowed to Christ that he could then pass on to those who believed on his name. And so he promises us a life, or at least offers us a life forever in heaven. When we talk about a life, we want to consider that something which is alive is in the very nature of God. When I think back to the Old Testament Levitical law, I notice that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. In fact, the Israelites were forbidden from coming into contact with something that was dead. And if they came into contact with a dead beast or a dead person, they had to purify themselves. Why? Because there was to be a separation between death and life. In Leviticus 17 and verse 11, God would say that the blood belongs to me. You don't eat it, you don't drink it. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood and it was given to you to make atonement on the altar. God said, I own the life. Jesus will say in Matthew 22 and verse 32, here speaking about God in Exodus 3, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Living then is the very nature of God. Do you also know that if you're familiar with your scriptures, 
that living or life or alive is the validity of Christ. In Romans 1 and verse 4, it says that Jesus was declared or demonstrated to be the Son of God by power, according to the Spirit of holiness, from the resurrection of the dead. You see, if Jesus had remained dead after he had been crucified on a Roman cross on a hill called Calvary, then he had no no right to claim to be God in the flesh. But at the moment, whenever the tomb was found empty and the Savior was seen alive, he could say, I am the Christ. In fact, when one would come in contact with him and they would touch his hands and his side, they would say, Thomas, my Lord and my God. Because whenever they saw Jesus alive, that was the only confession that could be made. Did you know the Holy Spirit being God also carries the nature of being alive. And whenever we follow the Spirit's given words, we also will enjoy that which is characterized as life. Galatians 6, beginning in, in verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Those who sow of the flesh shall reap corruption. That's what a dead body does. It decays. But also that's what sin does. It corrupts the soul. Notice the rest of Galatians 6 and verse 8. But those that sow unto the Spirit shall of or from the Spirit reap eternal life. Life then is a characteristic or quality of God himself. So too is that which God offers when he speaks of eternal or forever or everlasting. You see, the nature of God is everlasting. In Psalm 90 and verse 2, the psalmist would praise, as you and I would, would probably do well to do, before the mountains were brought forth, or before thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. In John 8, Jesus would testify that he was everlasting or eternal. He would say before Abraham was, the father of the Jews to whom he spoke, before Abraham was, I am thus showing that he was in the beginning with God John 1 in verse 1 the nature of the Holy Spirit is also that which is eternal he existed long ago in fact the Holy Spirit is as old as the mind of God and the mind of God is eternal first Corinthians 2 verses 10 and 11 says the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God yea the very mind of God that he might reveal that and make it known when the Holy Spirit reveals the word of God whenever he reveals what, what God has said and delivers that to man, then we could say the Spirit-inspired word is also eternal. Consider Psalm 119 and verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Every one of God's ordinances will continue forever. Psalm 119 and verse 160. God's word then is eternal, having been inspired by the eternal spirit. And also, when I think of a life forever in heaven, I understand that a life has to do with that which is from and of God. Forever has to do with that which is from and of God. But also, as I think about heaven, it is that which is from and of God. In Isaiah 66, in verse 1, the great prophet would praise God saying this, Heaven is your throne. And the earth is like that upon which you rest your feet. 
In Daniel 2.28, whenever Daniel would be called upon to interpret a dream of a pagan king, Daniel would be accused of having the ability to interpret the dream. And Daniel, if you'll allow me some liberty with the text, would say, no, no, it's not me. But there is a God in heaven who makes these things known. I also know that heaven is the dwelling place of Christ. It has been in eternity for God the Word. Jesus says that very thing in John 3 verse 13. Jesus would say, no one hath ascended into heaven, but one that descended out of heaven, even the Son of Man. And then it seems that John, writing some 30 or maybe 50 years after Christ's death, adds in this little phrase, who is in heaven. In fact, as the gospel accounts close, both uh, or all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even as the book of Acts opens, they open with Christ's ascension to God. I see then, like in Mark 16 and verse 19, so the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken unto them, the apostles, was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. And so as I think about a life forever in heaven, I understand that these things have to do with God. Now, I want us to break down our designated uh, title into three points. Number one, a life. Number two, forever. And number three, number two, forever. And number three, in heaven. Point one, two, three. I think this is going to be easy to follow and easy to understand. But I want to make sure that not only is it easy to understand and follow, but that it is extremely biblical. I also hope, hope, that maybe it can be just a little bit memorable. That's on the preacher, though, but also on the person who listens. When I talk about life, I want to talk about resurrection. Why? Because, and I may be breaking, I may be breaking uh, some bad news to you, but all of us will die. If Jesus does not come again, all of us will die. Consider a couple of passages of Scripture. In 1 Kings chapter 2, David is going to tell his son Solomon, I am going, this is verse 2 if you're looking, 1 Kings 2, 2. He said, I am going the way of all the earth. That is a really fancy way of saying, I'm going to die like everybody else dies. That's it. If you're reading the book of Genesis, you read Genesis 1, God creates everything. Genesis 2, he places man in the, in the garden. Genesis 3, sin. Genesis 4, you get Cain and Abel and you get the first death and that ushers in death. But when I read Genesis 5, you think it's just a boring list, but it's not. In Genesis chapter 5, these are the generations of Adam. And God begins to describe not every living being, at least not in my opinion, not even every living man, but he does begin to note those of Adam's lineage. And what you will see is that each man walking down, beginning with Adam in Genesis 5, 5, that closes with this. And if you like to highlight in your Bible, you could highlight this phrase, and he died. The only one that didn't was Enoch. He walked with God and did not see death. But everyone else died. That's what it means to go the way of all the earth. And so if you're just hearing this news for the first time, I'm sorry, but you will die unless Jesus comes again before you die. So life then 
He's not speaking of that which mother and father give to a baby, that spark given by God at creation, but rather of life that extends beyond the grave. And thus it is life that is resurrection. Let's find then a root text in John chapter 5. With each three of these points, I want us to have three root texts. There will be a number of other texts as well that you can look at and turn to or listen to or jot down. But at least allow us, uh, I will allow the time for us to consider these three texts. In John 5, verses 19 through 29. I want to give you that entire text, but for time's sake, let's narrow it down to verse 26. Reading from the American Standard Version, if you're reading from a different version, notice and compare. For as the Father hath life in himself, in other words, God is the God of the living, he is the, the giver of all life, even so gave he to the Son also life in himself. And he gave to him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man or a son of man. Marvel not at this. Do not be surprised. For the hour comes in which, and notice this word, all. All that are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. That's a resurrection. It's whenever Christ in coming again will call beyond the grave that which separates life from death, physical from spiritual. It will reach into the realms of Hades, going to the place of torments and to the place of paradise, and Christ will call forth the dead of all ages, and he will bring them out of the tombs alive again. They that have done good under the resurrection of, there's our word, life. They that have done evil under the resurrection of judgment, or if you prefer the translation that says condemnation, it's the same idea. Because if you've done evil falling under judgment, you will be condemned. You see, there is indeed a resurrection. All mankind, all human beings will be raised in the last day. In order to show this, in my estimation, Jesus resurrects dead Lazarus a few chapters later. If you're reading through the book of John, you will come to John chapter 11. And there you will find Jesus' friend, Lazarus, dead. And Jesus would speak beyond the grave, beyond the veil, and he would say this, Lazarus, come forth. The other dead would respect his voice. They would stay dead. But dead Lazarus would come out of the grave. His spirit reunited with his body. His soul reunited with his body that he might walk on the earth once more, but he would die again. Jesus, though, set the pattern or the type of resurrection which you and I will follow. That is to say, Jesus was raised, his body reconstituted with his spirit or his soul after three days in the grave, and yet he did not die again. But he does not walk on this earth. You see, he was forever changed that he might go to the Father in heaven. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 tells me that I will have the same type of body that Christ had, a body prepared for eternity, not eternity on this earth. I'm not looking to live on this earth forever, for it will be consumed and pass away, 2 Peter 3, 9 through 11. But I am following Jesus 
who went as a pathfinder or a forerunner, forerunner into the veil. And he gives me a path that I can follow according to Hebrews chapter 6, that my hope can be anchored within the veil. And so notice then, under the idea of resurrection, we have our root text, but we also have our reinforcing texts. I like alliteration. And so I'm hoping you're going to, to catch on as we go. But if you are a little slow, they all start with R. Okay, all right, maybe we can get it now. And so as I see this, I notice some passages to support the resurrection. Allow us to begin our study in Matthew 22, whenever the Sadducees came to Jesus with a scenario where a woman had been married, her husband had died with no children, and so she married a brother according to Mosaic law, on and on to the 10th brother. And he says, whose wife, or they asked, whose wife shall she be? Jesus will say in the resurrection will be like the angels, were neither married nor given in marriage. In John 11, verses 24 and 25, in the context of Jesus raising dead Lazarus, Mary, or sorry, Martha will say to Jesus, I know my brother Lazarus shall rise again in the last day. She knew about the resurrection. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me, notice John eleven twenty five. though he die, and that goes for ladies too, he or she that believeth on me, though he die, yet he shall live. That's what life after death means. You see, the gospel hope included the resurrection from the dead, Acts 17 and verse 18. Because whenever I am baptized into Christ, I don't stay buried in the water. I am raised out. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 8, I find out that in that I am united with Christ in his resurrection, allowing me the hope beyond the grave. Those who die to self in the waters of baptism have hope of dying never again. The principal text in our New Testament on the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. And there we will see so much in regards to the resurrection of the dead. It is a cornerstone of the gospel, verses 1 through 4. It is verified by Jesus, verses 5 through 12. And it is something that you and I can take to the grave. Here's how it's described. It's described as God's great victory over death. Paul would ask rhetorically, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Did you know that every time death has fought a battle, death is won? Do you know anyone that has fought a battle with death and has prevailed? As you imagine those whom you love, and you saw them going through sickness, illness, disease, or age, as they struggled with that death, we proverbially sing it right with this poetic picture of crossing over the valley or crossing over the river and going to the promised land. But there is no one who has engaged death in warfare and turned up victorious, save one. You see, Jesus fought death and he conquered it, never to die again. And because of that, 
He stands as our hope. That's why Paul would say in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising. Share in his sufferings, be made conformable to his death. He did away with all things. If by any way, by any means, he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. By way of prophetic narrative, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, what will happen on that great day. Jesus will come again with a shout, with the ark, like a, the voice of the archangel of God, the, the trumpet of God. What is that noise? It is so great that all the earth, whether you be on the day side or the night side, all the earth will hear. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who remain on this earth, we will forever be changed, according to 1 Corinthians 15. We will not all sleep, die, but we will all be changed the moment of the twinkling of an eye. And so it is that whenever Christ calls, the dead will be raised. Those left on earth will rise to meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. At that time, our bodies transition from physical and material to spiritual and eternal, fit to be with him forever. It's that body that John said we would have. I've already referenced it. 1 John 3 and verse 2. John said, Beloved now, we are children of God. It is not yet made manifest what we shall be. If he shall be manifest, that is to say Jesus, we shall be like him, for we shall see him even as he is. The body which Jesus transformed into as he ascended from heaven into earth because spiritual cannot inherit, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven as Jesus transcended and as he ascended and transformed, so too do you and I have the same hope. That description would be further spelled out in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. He says, for we know we have an earthly house of our tabernacle. Tabernacle means a tent. It's a Bible way oftentimes of describing this body. 2 Corinthians 4, he calls it a vessel. It's something that's temporary. It's something that breaks apart and decays. He says, if the earthly house of our tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building from God. He's not speaking of the church building. He's not speaking of, of the, the, the tallest building in, in the world. He's speaking of your body and my body. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so some believe that on the resurrection, we will only be resurrected into spiritual bodies. I will tell you, I believe in a physical bodily resurrection following Jesus. But in the moment, we will be changed. Because our physical bodies cannot dwell eternally with God in heaven. And so based upon these passages of scriptures and others that we have not mentioned, we will have the hope of a resurrection and a resurrected life with God. This is what the Bible describes as hope. So what then is the reality? God will raise the dead. What dead? All of them. Notice number two, forever. 
Forever then is a reward. As we think about the reward which God gives, I want us to try to understand the concept of eternity. And I say try because I, I don't think we can. You see, we had dinner tonight and enjoyed wonderful hospitality. And time could have just continued on because it, it seemed as if it were passing. And yet maybe, maybe 45 minutes or an hour went by and we were almost late for the start of our Bible class or seminar this evening. But if you can imagine a world in which time does not exist, you're doing better than I can. <laughs> I've heard it described this way. Imagine a ball the size of the earth, but made of steel. And imagine an ant that walked around this ball and wore down a path until this ball the size of earth were broken in half. How long would that take? At the moment when that ball broke in half, eternity has still just begun. You see, eternity is without end. And in the world in which we live that is so bound by time, we struggle to understand this concept. Allow us then to accept by faith what God has to say. Our root text will be taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. For time's sake, we'll focus in on verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy begat us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. C.1. Unto and notice the reward. Inheritance. How is this inheritance characterized? Incorruptible, undefiled, unfading reserved in heaven for you and God is the great security guard who by the power of God are guarded through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time the reward which the Christian has is characterized in many ways in first Peter chapter one it's called an inheritance if you can think of a wealthy family who has passed down generational wealth to children and grandchildren, you can begin to comprehend what God offers to his children, those who are born again, born of the Spirit. In fact, we would be told that that's where our treasures are to be laid. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus would say, Lay, up not, for, lay not for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break through and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven why because there neither moth nor rust consume nor do thieves break through and steal for where your treasure is there your heart shall be also i notice in revelation 2 and verse 10 that god promises a crown of life the greek language has two words for crown one of them is Didikos. It's a ruling crown given to princes and kings. The other is Stephanos. It's where we get our English name Stephen from. It means a crown of victory. That's what the Christian has promised, a crown of victory. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 6, that crown of victory was reserved for him and all of those who loved God's appearing or Christ appearing and his kingdom. You see, God promises, Romans chapter 2 and verse 7, to those that in patience by well-doing seek glory, honor, incorruption, eternal life. In Galatians 6 and verse 8, 
This reward is described once again as those who sow of the Spirit shall enjoy eternal life. In 2 John 1 and verse 8, it's called a full reward. But I would call our attention to Revelation 14 and verse 13. I've been going slow tonight, and so as time wears down, I may have to speed up. It's okay? Okay. I know Brother Alvin talks fast. He says there, Revelation 14, verse 13, Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth forevermore, yea, saith the Spirit, for they shall receive rest from their labors, and their works do follow after them. In God's eternal reward, there is an offering of rest, relief, and respite. This is what God gives as part of his inheritance. Can you imagine then the treasures of heaven? They would be greater than the treasures of the temple of Jerusalem, greater than the treasures of Babylon, greater than the treasures of any kingdom we can imagine on this earth or could observe, greater than the wealthiest of people or nations, greater than the empires or businesses, those treasures are God's treasures, which you and I get to enjoy in heaven, not in some carnal or materialistic way, but the greatest of these will be our blessing and privilege of being with God in his presence. There is a reality that then stands. God will reward the righteous. Number three, when we think about in heaven, and we've talked about the characterization of heaven as being that which pertains to and is of God, then God, God offers us a place of residence. Now, that's a really big text. But as the book of Revelation closes, to give the Christian in tribulation, Revelation 1 verse 8, hope, he points us, them, and us to an eternal home. This is seen in Revelation 21, verse 1 through 22, verse 6. Beginning in 22, verse 7, I believe you have a conclusion of the entire book, uh, mirroring chapter 1. In Revelation 21, then, here's what I find. There's a voice that cries from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or dwelling place of God is with men. He <laughs> shall dwell with them and they shall be his people's. God himself shall be with them, for he shall be their God. And then notice the personal relationship. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. That's the inheritance which God offers. Not the riches of the world, but that which only God can give. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For those first things are passed away. And he that sits on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That's what eternity looks like when you're on God's side. It is a residence with him in heaven. Notice then a couple of passages to support or reinforce this idea. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12, talking about those who are persecuted, he says this, for great is your reward in heaven. John chapter 14, Jesus said, do not be troubled or let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many places to live, right? I like the ESV here. Dwelling places, dwellings. We're more familiar, though, with the older versions. It says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. And if I go, I will prepare a place for you 
that where I am, where is Jesus? Heaven. There you may be also. There is a room prepared for me in my father's house. There is a door with my name on the outside. And if I remain faithful unto death, I will inhabit it for all eternity. Otherwise, it would just be an empty room. Or maybe as we as we sing in the King James Version, an empty mansion. Paul would speak to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. He would say in verse 8, we are of good courage because we are willing to be absent from the body, to be at home with the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Heaven then, not this earth or our country or the status of our citizenship is our home. In Philippians 3 and verse 20, it says our citizenship is in heaven. 1 Peter 1 and verse 4 describes our hope being in heaven. It is reserved in heaven for you. Hebrews 11 verse 10, there is a city for which those faithful of old sought, and you and I can hope to go there too. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims, those who are just traveling through this world, but not the ones who reside there. And then once again, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17, we will be caught up in the air and there we shall be forever with the Lord. God promises us then an eternal residence to the saved, a life forever in heaven. God then will raise the dead to an eternal reward, living with him forever. Over the next few minutes, allow me then to conclude this lesson, but please don't, don't put up your Bibles just yet. Notice that God offers a life. The world offers death. I want you to consider the contrast of this. What God offers is opposite of what the world offers. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. From the time that sin entered into the world, the outcome was always death. In fact, the New Testament would characterize it this way, the law of sin and death. Why? Because when I sin, I am due death. The only thing this world can offer is death. I understand that at least as ways uh, uh, statistics are accounted, that suicide rates are rising, especially among younger people. While that's very sad, and there are no doubt a number of things that contribute to that, allow me to simply illustrate using that statistic this fact. The world only offers death. God offers something greater. He offers life. There is also hope for us beyond this world. When I think of forever, I want to think of what the world offers. And while it stands as nothing on the screen, it is that which is not forever. It is temporary. Notice how the contrast is set forth in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, the contrast between the eternal and the temporal. He says, wherefore we faint not, but though our outward man, our body is um, decaying, is, is passing away, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. 
for our light affliction, the things we go through on this earth, is but for a moment. And it worketh for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. Why? For we look not at the things which are seen. That's all the world can offer, the things which are seen. But we look at the things which are unseen. That's what God offers. For the things which are seen are temporal. They are bound by time. But the things which are unseen are eternal. It's no wonder then that just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, he would call us to walk by faith and not by sight. And Christ, our God through Christ offers us a place in heaven. The world can only offer us hell. That's all. You see, there are only two eternal destinations. They're described in Matthew 25 verses 41 through 46. Allow us to see that in Matthew 25, verse 41. Then shall he, that is Christ, the great judge in the last day, say to them on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice Matthew 25, verse 46. These shall go away to eternal punishment. That's not our lesson today. But the righteous into eternal life. You see Romans 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, is only half the verse and only half the story. The Bible says there in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in, through, or by Jesus Christ, our Lord. So how then can I enjoy a life forever in heaven? Well, what matters is what I do on this earth. And I cannot earn it because in John 14 and verse six, in order to receive that place prepared for me, I must go through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. How then, Jesus, would you have us to go through you? The steps in the New Testament are clear, but they're not necessarily easy because they require a commitment that most people are not willing to give. That's why broad is the way which leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to life. But if you don't know God's steps to salvation, allow us to enumerate them tonight. With the supporting passages on the screen for you to study, either tonight or in your spare time. But the Bible would suggest and demand that you must hear the word of God. Because it is necessary that you must understand something in order for you to act in the direction of that thing. They must all be taught of God. John 6, 44 and 45. That's the only way to produce faith, Romans 10 and verse 17. But just hearing alone is not enough. The call can go out, but the response must be made. How then do I become part of the called? It starts with a rock-solid faith, not just in the existence and reality of God, but in the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is, that He was God in the flesh, that He is God. He would say in John 8, 24, unless you believe I am He, you will die in your sins. Based on that faith, there must be action. The principle among those actions seemed to be a willingness to change it's what the Bible calls repentance. It may not be a word that you use often, but it means a change of life that is brought about by a change of mind, conforming your will and your life to God's will 
and to his word. We see this in Acts 17 and verse 30. God commands all men everywhere to repent. We must confess that Jesus Christ is God. This would be an action of our mouth in front of witnesses, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And then allow someone to baptize us. The Bible would set forth the principle of a Christian man baptizing. And so I would submit to one baptizing me that is immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins. And the picture is given in Acts 22, verse 16. Saul, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. As you're going to see, if you will make a point to join us tomorrow night and the following night, that abundant life can begin at the point of baptism. And if you remain faithful unto death, it will extend into eternity. Is that something that interests you? It interests me. And I would like with all that I have to encourage you to take these thoughts and considerations seriously, to look to Jesus that he might give you an abundant life on earth, and more importantly, an abundant life forever with the Father in heaven. If there's any need in our uh, assembly this evening, you've been told how to respond, and we would invite you to do so as we stand and as we sing to encourage one another. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing His mercy and His grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all Jesus will sing and shout the victory while we walk the pilgrim pathway clouds will overspread the sky but when traveling days are over not a shadow not a sign when we all get to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see jesus will sing and shout the victory let us then be true and faithful trusting serving every day just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay when we all get to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see jesus will sing and shout the victory